Let's start by wishing everyone who's watching uh, online and everyone who's here with us today. I want to start by wishing you all a Chanukah uh, Sameach, an amazing Chanukah uh, full of light. And of course, I want to dedicate my, my words today, Leilui Nishmato, to the uh, raising of the Nishama of the soul, if it's possible, in Gan Eden, for Edmund J. Safra who, uh, again, we'll hear in the hash- we're going to have a hashkava in just a little while with our Hazan, Hazan Shmuel Levi, um, who was a remarkable person. You know, the foundation actually is active in more than 40 different countries. They produced a book, and in the front of that book, there's a little mission statement that I found uh, remarkable. The name of the book that characterizes and incorporates all of the charity that the foundation gives out, its title is not charity, its title is not kindness, its title is dignity. And in the mission statement they talk about how the mission of the foundation, of the charity that they give, is to help people who are marked by difficult circumstances, to solve the problems that they have. But not just to take care of the problems, so that the problems go away, but to give the people who have those needs an element, an aspect of dignity. And I want to share why I think those words characterize, perhaps more than any, el- any other, the greatness of what Edmund Alava Shalom achieved, but also what it is that allows us to uh, connect with this magnificent holiday. You know, <clears throat> there was a book written, written by a, a fellow called Daniel Goleman. It was called Emotional Intelligence. And it's an interesting book. But there's a specific chapter, or at least its title, <laughs> that I think is incredibly important for us to consider when we think about these candles. You know, <clears throat> the Gemara in Shabbat, when it talks about where you light the Hanukkah candles, it learns its place, its placement, the height of the candles, from a very interesting uh, dirasha, one that we just read about. The Gemara brings a limud, a learning that we understand from the selling of Yosef, where the Pasuk says, Habor rek en bomayim. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. And we learn the depth of that pit. We learn from the depth of that pit that they could not see what was indeed inside the pit. We learn from the ability to see the scope of space that the eye can capture what's going on. We learn from there how high a menorah can be. Because if it's beyond that space, that height, that is not within the capability of a human eye to be able to discern. So what the brothers could not see in the pit that they threw Joseph in, is is from there we learn where a person will be or will be unable to see the height of the menorah. Very strange place to learn that halakha from, right? To learn from Yosef and what's in the pit, what's not in the pit, to learn about the candles, how high the candles should be. Surely there is a happier instance to learn this from. Surely there is a, a more inspiring source 
to be able to get the proper height from the Minorath to learn that from. And I think perhaps the Gemara is teaching us a profound, profound message. You know, Rabbi Ruven just talked to us about the necessity of standing up, of speaking up. But in his book, Daniel Goleman, he talks about the developmental psychologist Jerome Kagan, who served, uh, who did a tremendous amount of research for, for Harvard University. And he divided the temperament of people to at least four categories. And those categories were timid, bold, yeah, happy, and melancholy. Very interesting. Now, these character traits, you might think they appeared when someone was dating. You might think that he noticed them by studying people who did or did not ask for a raise, people who put themselves forward for positions or not. But you know when he started to notice these four distinct categories of temperament? He noticed it in babies. Months old babies. Babies that were hesitant. Babies that would be happy to play or to go to someone new. Some of you might have seen this in your own children. A child that's happy, you pass the kid to anyone, a stranger, they're very happy, they're playing with their face. A child that when you give it away from the mother or the father to one of the guests at the Shabbat table, the kid, Those children were exhibiting patterns of behavior, which when followed for years and years, would remarkably still be part of the person's persona. They would still be timid. They would still be anxious. And he started realizing that these things that they found in children, some of them nurture, some of them nature, would result in teenagers that were timid. And if as a baby you're afraid to go to someone strange, as a teenager you might find it more difficult to interact and make friends with people you don't know. As an adult, you might find it more difficult to go into an awkward social setting and just speak to someone without being embarrassed or without being afraid that you might make a mistake. Those temperamental elements would find expression throughout these people's lives. Sometimes, as I said, nature, some babies are just born happier, some babies are born more curious, always testing limits. I have a nephew who walks around with a stick, hitting everything with a stick. Either he's going to be a terrorist or he's going to be a baseball player. We're waiting to see how that pans out. Okay? Kids that are born in a specific way. None of the other kids were that way. Nature. But then they discovered that there were children who were born timid, who were sorry, who seemed timid at such a young age, but they were not timid from birth. They had overprotective parents. That as soon as a child started crying, the mom would come run, pick up the baby, not let it cry for more than one second. If the baby started marching towards something, the mother would come and pick it up right away. As opposed to parents 
that when they saw the child heading for the outlet, said, don't touch that. But they didn't pick him up. The kids started crying, and the parent would say, gently, not abusive. Shh, mommy's reading. Instead of, oh. Those children were taught messages inadvertently by their parents that every problem that you face is beyond your control. The only way you're going to survive is if mommy comes to get you. If you cry, it's a disaster. If there's a tear that runs down your cheek, the world is falling apart. Someone needs to hug you now. Are you understanding this? You could make kids like this, or kids could naturally be that way. But unbelievably, many of these timid children, of these sad children, became timid or sad adults. And many of these upbeat or bold children became upbeat or bold adults. But the name of the chapter is really what I want to talk to you about. The name of the chapter is Temperament is Not Destiny. My friends, it's so easy to look back at the story of Hanukkah and assume that this miracle occurred to Hashemunayim, to warriors. But they were not warriors. They were Kohanim. They were rabbis. Sons of rabbis. Grandsons of rabbis. That's like genetically out of shape. And they took on not just any army, but an army made up of a people who were dedicated to the absolute perfection of the human specimen. The reason why they were naked back in the time, these uh, uh, athletes, wasn't because they were sweating so much. It was because it was a matter of pride that each muscle should be defined. That the, the perfection in human form should be evident. That's what the Greeks stood for. Okay? Now, I need you to hear this because this is so important. Who gave the Chashmonai family the chutzpah to think to lead a rebellion? To me, there's two parts to the miracle of the story of Hanukkah. One part is the actual miracle. That when they went to war, they won the war. Hazaku Baruch. But my friends, there's another miracle. And that miracle is not that they won the war that they went to. That miracle, the preeminent miracle, is the miracle that they went to war at all. Who, who thinks that you go to war against an army with a family? Who thinks about that? Who makes such a move? The very first and perhaps most impressive miracle of Hanukkah is what? Is that Hashmonaim picked up swords. Everything that happens after that to me, is a secondary miracle. You know, the rabbis tell us that the very last holiday that was instituted was the holiday of Hanukkah. We don't have more holidays after that. Last holiday. And it struck me, Rabbi, it struck me. Why was Hanukkah the last holiday? Because after Hanukkah, we didn't need any more holidays. Because the essence of Hanukkah was that anyone can do it. 
Anyone can pick up the sword. Anyone can lead a revolution. It's remarkable. Your temperament is not your destiny. Now, let's take a look for one second at the unbelievably charismatic, at the remarkably beautiful Yosef, the protagonist of the story in the Boar. He has everything going for him. He's his father's favorite son. He's got everything, everything, everything lined up in terms of his temperament. He's the brightest. He's the wisest. He's the favorite. He comes from the favorite mother. Everything is lined up. All the stars are aligned. And where does Yosef find himself? The trajectory of Mr. Charisma, of Mr. Dynamism, of John F. Kennedy. Where does his star land? In a pit so deep that no one can even see him. We don't know what's at the bottom of this pit. But conversely, his rise, his rise to being a king, where does it come from? It stems from being in a pit. Remarkable. From being on top of the world, where does he get? To win a pit. From being in a pit, in the pit of Potiphar, where does he get? To the throne. We learn the essence of the lighting of the candles of Hanukkah from the pit that you can't even see Joseph in. If that is not the most beautiful lesson you've ever heard in your life about Hanukkah, I don't know what is. It was for me. That's why it's the last holiday. We don't need any more after this. Because you know what? I don't even know what your name is. But you, you could lead the next Hanukkah. No, I'm pointing to the person in front of you. By the way, if she would have said that offended, I would have said, would have said I'm pointing to the person behind you. <laughs> right? You, you, it could be you. It could be you that builds the very next institution that will save all the Jewish people. It doesn't have to be me. You see, the most likely people would be rabbis, right? But that's not actually, oftentimes, the people who are making these revolutions. Oftentimes it will be someone who is a banker, who is funding yeshivot and kolels and shuls, but alongside that, medical research. And there was, again, one of my favorite ones that he did was, there was a random tiny community in the middle of nowhere that didn't have a chazan for the high holidays. And they reached out to the foundation. And the foundation gave them enough money to be able to hire a chazan to sing the songs of the heart. Who cares about a forgotten con- congregation on the other side of the world? Edmund Safra did. Now he was a humble person. And he had a dream. In the words of his wife, he had a dream to build a bank that would last a thousand years. But she writes very eloquently in the introduction to that book that the foundation that they built and the mark that it will make will last far beyond that. It's an unlikely hero. The Chidushe Harim writes a remarkable story where Hashem says to the Jewish people in Egypt, V'hotzeti etchem, and I will take you out Mitachat Sivlot Mitzrayim. From under Sivlot, under the pain, under the burden of Egypt. And he writes 
that whilst all the other interpretations of all of those describe a, uh, a taking out of the Jewish people from Egypt. is a very different thing. He says, the gift I will give you here is that you should merit to be able to not feel under the thumb of the Egyptians. Every salvation first begins with us. It begins with us being comfortable in the dark. It begins with us being unafraid to try something. You know, I will just give you a simple example, and I know lots of people will see this. Our Hazan, Shmuel, is a master of uh, Middle Eastern music. And we were having a conversation. And in our conversation, we were talking about how less and less people know the tunes of the Beta Knesset. And I said to him, look, that's a reality. As time goes on, the older generation is going to know, but the younger generation won't. And Shmuel said, maybe it's a foregone conclusion. And I said to him, but let's try to do something about it. So we came up with an idea to start a WhatsApp group where every week, Shmuel would give one pizmon, a pizmon from the makam, from the genre of music of that week. And you'd learn how to sing the song. I posted it online, I sent out some messages. When I shared this with someone from the community, he said, you know, I don't even know why you're bothering. It's never going to go anywhere, no one's going to join, no one's interested. And I, I'm so sad it was on Shabbat. Because I wanted to show him that in the 24 hours that it had taken from the time we posted the group until he made that comment of nobody joining, we already had to open a second group because there was 257 people in the first group. And that's the maximum that WhatsApp will let you. Everyone will tell you that you can't do it and that it can't be done and that's not your temperament and you're not the right person and they'll have a million reasons why we should sit in the dark forever until someone with the guts says, but what if, what if we didn't do it that way? What if we tried? What if we started a group? What if we started a class? People told us in, when we started Chazak in the synagogue, that they would never be a class that lots of people would come to. It would never happen. People don't want to learn in Manhattan. They came to Manhattan to get away from the communities of Brooklyn and Deal where they're much more religious. That's what they told me, and that's what they told Rabbi Mizrahi, and that's what they told Rabbi Abragamov. But we can tell you now from the experience that we have classes every single day of every age group. And it's just more and more and more and more and more. Perhaps the greatest gift of Chanukah is the chutzpah that it gives. The audacity that it gives to people to try. Someone tells you, you're not going to find it. I've already done the research. 50 years I've been looking. Don't bother. I know a guy. Let me make a call. What does it hurt? How'd that work out for us? Worked out okay, James? God bless you. Why are we so afraid to try? What's the worst that could happen? 
My friends, there's a machloket between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. And with this, I'm going to end. How do we light the Hanukkah candles? Do we start with one light and go to two and then three and then four and then five and then six, seven and eight? Right? Lighting more and more candles each night? Or do we start with eight candles in a blaze of glory and then slowly go to seven, to six, to five, to four, to three, to two, to one? Do we get less and less? Or do we go more and more? We hold, as you all know, that we start with one little light and we go more and more. What does Bet Hillel say? Rabbi, which opinion does Bet Hillel give us? One to eight. Which opinion does Bet Shammai give? Eight to one. My friends, Shammai was born with the bold temperament. We see it in every interaction that he has. So Shammai comes out like Shammai lives with eight candles. But Hillel is so gentle. Someone comes and bothers him at Shabbat. Hillel's wrapped in his towel. The guy bothered him 50 times. He says, how can I help you? What a great question. He's, so, he's timid by nature. So Hillel says what? We come out with that one candle. It's hard enough for someone who's born that way to give it a try at all. But at least you can give something small. And then slowly you build. And then slowly you build. Our rabbis tell us that when Mashiach comes, much of the halakha will follow the opinion of Bet Shammai. But for the duration of the time that we are in Galut, we follow the opinion of Bet Hillel. And I thought to myself, when Mashiach comes, and he's coming soon, and the mask gets ripped off of our face, and we are brought face to face with the power of our souls, and we understand that it is Borei Olam that runs the world, we as Jews who follow God's creed, we will be very confident people. All of the things that make us afraid will disappear in an instant. That will be the time when every one of us will be Shammai's. But while we are in Galut, and every time you pick up your head for two seconds, someone whacks it down like some sort of vicious game of whack-a-mole, But there's something special, in my eyes even more special, than the bold, upbeat, sure move of a Shammai. There's something oh so special, oh so precious, of the timid attempt of a Jewish person living in Galut, who hears the anti-Semitic tropes, who knows what it is on the streets of every country we've ever lived in, and lights, tries, does something small, fights with his Yetzirah, can't get out of bed in the morning for Shacharit, struggles with Shabbat and with Kosher, and with Shmirat Einaim and Shmirat Kashrut, struggles with saying Lashon struggles with being judgmental to people, struggles with all these things. And you know what? And you think you're nothing. Most of us do. 
We have an underdeveloped period, uh, opinion of ourselves. We have, pardon the pun, on the days of Hanukkah, a window of opportunity. A window of opportunity to be able to realize that all that God ever asked from us, and perhaps the greatest miracle that ever occurred in the history of the world, is the miracle of a person who thought that they belonged in the camp of I can't, crossing the river and finding a tiny vial of oil, like Rabbi Mizrahi said, and saying to him or herself, maybe I can. Maybe. What is your candle? What is your maybe? What are you bringing when you light your Hanukkah candles? When you teach your children? What is your maybe? What are you adding? What is a little light that you're not even sure you can maintain? What is it? Is it coming to shul? How many people do I know who are daily shul goers? And you know how they got started? Mechila. When their father died. When their mother died. Like the pithy observation goes, Acharemot, Kedoshim Emor. After someone dies, right? Literally, it's the parashiot in Bayikra. Acharemot, then Kedoshim, then Emor. But some say, Acharemot, after someone dies, Kedoshim or Kadishim Emor. They have to say Kadish. They don't want to disrespect their father. All of a sudden, the guy that can't get up, I'm not a mourning person. Rabbi, I'm not a shul goer. All of a sudden, he's the biggest shul goer ever. He's there for the first Kaddish in respect for his father. And a year goes by, and I can't becomes, and I can. In that scenario, it's something tragic that brings it to the attention of a person. But it doesn't need to be something tragic. Your Shabbat table is filled with Lashon Hara. You're talking about other people in the community, or how terrible the rabbi's speech was. It was one of my weeks, not when Rabbi Mizrahi spoke. How do you change that? Learn one halacha of Shmirat HaLashon at the table every week. Now I can't change the culture. I can. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to try something small. It's very difficult, Rabbi. Very difficult for me to keep kosher. Can you try keeping kosher one day a week? You keep kosher only for meat restaurants? Could you try also for milk restaurants? You keep kosher for meat and milk? Could you try keeping it even the vegetarian? One small light. We learn that temperament is not destiny. Every single one of us can do something beautiful, can do something great. But greatness doesn't start in a blaze of glory. Not until Mashiach comes. Greatness starts with one small candle, according to the opinion of Beit Hillel. You know, Hanukkah is about lehodot u lehalel. Lehodot means to give thanks. But what does lehalel mean? To give praise. On the days of Hanukkah, what do we say? Each day, we read, Halel. 
Hallel is said about a miracle. You know that? We don't say Hallel if there's no miracle. So most people think that that Hallel is only about the wars that was. The jug of oil that survived. But my friends, listen to the Berachat that you yourself are saying. When you light the menorah. She'asah nisim la'avotenu. Bayamim ahem, he did miracles for our fathers. In those days, Basiman azeh. Where's your miracle? You just said it in the Berachat. You don't believe it? Don't say the Berachat. Berachat levatalah. What's your miracle? Their miracle was that they were not afraid to try. What are you not afraid to try? Show me the miracle. Lehodot ulehalel. And each day of Chanukah, we will thank God for the miracle of turning I can't into I can. May we be zocheh in this Bet HaKneset to ultimately uh, make the neshama, the soul of our great founder proud in every, each and every day. And I know that he would be proud of the dignity that we afford people. I know he would be proud of our project of giving the gift to, of warmth to people who are freezing on the streets. I know he would be proud because it was something that he himself did. He took his coat off and gave it to people in the middle of the street. Expensive coats. I know he would be proud, my friends, of the fact that... Oh, we had a young man, I call him a young man, because his spirit was young. Eliyahu Moshe Weiss. He used to sit right over here. And he passed away right in the beginning of COVID. And because no one was coming to the Beit HaKnesset, except for me, I would come all the time by myself and let myself in and pray here. His tefillin and his talit did not move for nearly a year. It was right here on the first bench. He was so proud about the fact that on the first day of Chanukah, two years ago, myself and Haron approached him and asked him, and he was homeless at the time, and we asked him if he would do us the honor of lighting the first night of Chanukah in our Beit HaKnesset. And he was so moved, and he kept saying again and again, I can't believe it. In the Safra Synagogue, they're asking me, I'm a nobody, all these rich people, all these powerful people, all these important people, and they're asking me to light the first candle. I know Edmund would be proud of that dignity that we afforded him. He was so proud, he talked about it all the time. My friend, but Eliyahu Moshe Weiss, lighting the first candle of Hanukkah, is perhaps the most Hanukkah type thing that I have ever seen in my entire life. May we be zocheh bezrat Hashem to have a wonderful holiday and to bring uh, much needed light to a dark world. And in that merit, bezrat Hashem, we should be zocheh um, to see the coming of Mashiach Merave Amenu, where we will experience an enormous amount of light. The light of Bet Shammai, a bold, an upbeat, a happy, a strong light. Uh, speedily in our days.